Welcome in. Happy Tuesday. Good to have you. Got a, another jam-packed show and, and a very special 2 o'clock hour. I'll explain why momentarily. Want to get you caught up on a couple of, of other things making headlines today locally here if you're a sports fan. We've been talking a little bit about Bally Sports Detroit and, and some of the financial issues that their parent company is experiencing. And that's left a little bit of doubt for fans of the Red Wings, the Tigers, the Pistons, about where they would be able to watch these these games into the future if Diamond Sports, the parent company of Bally Sports, goes belly up because they're going bankrupt. Well, now Amazon is stepping in to, I guess, the surprise of nobody. In talks with Diamond Sports and some of its creditors to invest in the broadcast group and partner on streaming. That's according to people close to these discussions. Cranes Detroit's report that under the potential deal, Amazon would acquire a multi-year streaming rights to Major League Baseball, NBA, and NHL games that are currently under control of Diamond Sports. Diamond would continue to operate the channels, they say. Although it's a little hazy about how much Amazon would need to invest, but the proposal involves acquiring an equity stake in Diamond, which would certainly keep Diamond afloat while they maybe figure out a, a longer-term plan. Now, Bally Sports, uh, uh, for the last number of years, has had the rights to the Tigers, the Pistons, the Red Wings, but they also have rights to MHSAA football and boys and girls basketball as well. Uh, so all of that's run through Bally. So... There is the possibility that you'll be watching Tigers games or Red Wings games or Pistons games on Amazon Prime, which, look, I, there are lots of people that have these streaming services. And we saw it during college football season. More of these games were going towards Peacock uh, and other streaming platforms. But it, 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 it would more than likely cut down on viewership because still I think most people have cable or at least they have streaming services that carry a, a, a cable-esque offering. Uh, as opposed to these individual streaming platforms. So we'll, we'll see what that does to the to the viewing. But in sports these days, I mean, all of these games are broadcast, which is not how it used to be. Um, and so you're, you're, you're left hoping that you'll be able to watch these games. Meanwhile, some Democrats are divided over how President Joe Biden's reelection pitch with some criticizing controversial terms like Bidenomics while others inside the Biden campaign circle are remaining relatively calm. We're confident that if we keep our heads down, ignore the chatter, ignore the noise, and put our plan in place, we'll be successful on Election Day. That's according to Communications Director Michael Tyler for the Biden campaign. Uh, Others outside of Biden's circle, particularly Democrats, are a little hazy on the term Bidenomics. Fox News reporting that John Morgan, an Orlando attorney who's a longtime big-money donor to the Democratic Party, said that the Biden team needs a better word to explain his accomplishments than Bidenomics. Multiple outlets, including Axios, have reported that Biden and other Democratic Party leaders are refusing to use the term Bidenomics in speeches and social media posts, especially if they are Democrats in the House or in the Senate that are running in tight reelection campaigns, um, trying to distance themselves from that term. Uh, Again, as we are within that year from this election, it's going to be pretty important how these candidates are phrasing uh, certain types of you know, catchy catchphrases like Bidenomics and whether that's going to help them get elected or reelected. If it's not going to help them get reelected, they're not, certainly not going to use it. Um, this continued conflict 
between Israel and Hamas is a complicated one. It is one that we try to tackle on this show ever since October 7th. It's very difficult when we only have a couple of minutes. So we decided we need to get some experts in here, have a long-form discussion about what's happening because things continue to change pretty rapidly on the ground in the Mideast. And that's why we brought in Sahid Khan, the Associate Professor of Teaching in Near Eastern Studies at Wayne State University, who joins us. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. No snow today for your travels in, which was nice. That was welcome. Yes, we did that for you. Thank you. Uh, Also, Howard Lupovich, the director of the Cohen Haddow Center for the Judaic Studies at Wayne State University. He joins us. It's nice to see you in person. Nice to see you, too. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, So the the basis of this actually mirrors something that that you guys have done for for a long time. This is a, a, a conflict that has been going on since the early 1900s, certainly you can track it back to after World War II, and we'll get into a little bit of that. Um, but but you two have worked very closely and hosted different forums on uh, 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 trying to bridge a gap or bring people together, try to paint a certain picture of what's happening in that part of the world. Why did you start that? And see, we'll start with you. Well, I don't think we started, Howie, did we? I, we didn't start with Israel-Palestine at all. Okay. I mean, first of all, for the record, I mean, I'm, I'm not Palestinian. Sure. Uh, but, and it's not an issue that really defines us. I think, if anything, part of our identity, of course, is our, our, our faith identities, uh, Howie being Jewish and I being Muslim. Uh, and we came together as academics, uh, became friends, uh, in having not just discussions, but difficult discussions for a lot of people and hopefully demonstrating to people that you can have these discussions and have respect for one another. You can agree to disagree and still have that kind of mutual respect and admiration and really learning from one another. So I think the very first time uh, we did uh, we, we did a talk together was uh, dealing with a Muslim Jewish poll uh, that ha- or survey that had been done regarding the American landscape. From there, we morphed into being on a panel at the DIA on Rembrandt in Amsterdam, (laughs) painting Jesus Christ. Uh, And then from there, we moved into uh, different topics, uh, everything from anti-Semitism and Islamophobia to Zionism, Jihad, whose Middle East is it? Uh, When in 2017, the uh, U.S. Embassy was moved uh, from Tel Aviv to West Jerusalem, hopefully providing our audiences with uh, more texture, more insight, uh, more context, and more balance to uh, these uh, complex topics, which, as you said very rightly, can't really be handled in either two minutes or 240 characters on Mm. Twitter or X. Why is it such a difficult topic to broach with people, especially people that come from different backgrounds, different religions, different parts of the world. Why, why, why is it especially, I mean, today it, you talked about social media and trying to boil this down into something simple as a tweet, but it's so much more difficult. Why, why is it so difficult to have these conversations, do you think, Howard? Well, first of all, it's difficult because the feelings are so strong. There are deep, deeply rooted connections uh, to this part of the world, that some of which are theological in nature, some of which are historical in nature or familial in nature. And when you have two different groups, each of whom have these deep connections, it's difficult to see 
that the uh, that that the, that point of view which disagrees or negates your own is somehow acceptable or legitimate. So the feelings run run very very deep, and the stakes are also very high, because like I said, two groups who have this deep connection losing this is this is a this is a conflict which to lose it just leaves your side in a very difficult situation, and it's difficult to imagine. I think you also have two peoples. You know, you have you have Jews slash Israelis. You have Palestinians, each of whom have had a history of well, a history that revolves in some ways around a point of grievance mm-hmm. and the 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 attainment of statehood for both groups is um, you know a reprieve or a resolution or, or for that grievance, mm-hmm. and that that's what makes it very important as well. So uh, as we continue today, uh, we're gonna. Continue to have these conversations through the two o'clock hour. If if people would like to weigh in, ask a question, um, we, we would welcome that. Uh, the professors would welcome that. 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. We'll, we'll take a break. Come back. We're going to talk about the, the past, how we got to where we are today. And we're going to continue to try to find a way forward as we continue here on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Joined by Sahid Khan and Howard Lupovitz uh, from Wayne State University. It's great to have you both. I, I, I think that having these conversations at least can provide a little bit of color. It can provide context. It can provide clarity for some folks. And I don't, it's to, as hard as it is to... Uh, have these conversations in our format in, in terrestrial radio where you've got segments and you only have a certain amount of time. It's even more damaging when you're dealing with social media, which we, we touched on briefly, but there is this sense that that people aren't willing to sit down. People aren't willing to hear these these different sides of the same of the same issue, of the same conflict. And when you get to that point, you you tend to miss the bigger picture. You tend to miss important facts or or you you miss the ability to to sympathize with somebody or or understand somebody's point of view and i i don't subscribe to that i i don't know i don't know when in our path we we got to this point but it's it doesn't feel productive at all is that is that a fair representation do you think howard absolutely absolutely i mean the complexity alone belies any one dimensional approach to this conflict in fact, I, I mean, I would say no matter what your one dimension is, if you have a one-dimensional approach to this conflict, it's going to be less than adequate. Or, or, or to put it another way, if you really want to understand the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, which, of course, is not the same as the conflict between Israel and Hamas, this longer conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, if you really want to understand it in all of its complexity, you have to embrace both the proposition that, owing to a certain historical experience, Jews have a right to a state in Palestine, but also that owing to a historical experience, Palestinians have a right to a state there as well. Mm-hmm. You've got to embrace them both. Any argument for one is also an argument for the other. I mean, and that's that has to be your point of departure, in my opinion. All right. Can I can I try now? I have two experts here. Can I try to give you a nutshell version of the history of this? Sure. sure. And you can give me thumbs up, thumbs down. But I want you to add to it if you feel uh, the Ottoman Empire was placed under the, the, this region, Palestine, was placed under British control after the decision of League of Nations, right? Uh, partner that with the Nazi persecution in the Holocaust of World War II. You had tens of thousands of people migrating to that region, and conflict really started. 
Uh, there have been uprisings from the Palestinians at different times, certainly surrounding the Oslo Accords of the 90s. Uh, and and over the last 15 years or so, uh, whether it's the late 2000s, the early to mid 2010s, or even the early 2020s, there's always been a ceasefire after these these conflicts that have flared up. But as we find ourselves in today, they don't they don't hold. Um, and then in 2006, when Hamas won the election, they took uh, they took control of Gaza and and that's about where we find ourselves today. Is that is that in a nutshell a fair representation of where we're at? So factually everything you said is 100% accurate. The issue though is and I'm going to go ahead and date all of us in the room. This is like Tinker Toys. You've got the big hub pieces but you have to know how the sticks fit and in which hole you place them because there is a sequence, there is a context and there are a bunch of other uh, factors that are uh, at work here. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about is uh, a certain number of very important uh, milestones that, that happened. But you're also looking at a broader causal issue. So how did we get to the Ottoman Empire losing this area? We're looking at World War I. We're also looking at ambition by European forces for this area, which predated World War I. Mm-hmm. Interest in the Suez Canal, interest in oil starting to be discovered in the early 20th century. The fact that the Europeans promised the same piece of land to multiple parties. The Jews, thanks to the Balfour Declaration. The Arabs, thanks to a series of letters and correspondence between an Arab tribesman and the British in Egypt at that time. Uh, The French are also involved at a certain time after World War II. You're absolutely right. The narrative of the Holocaust uh, plays a very big role, but so does uh, America emerging on the global stage as an international power and also its interest in oil in the area moving all the way up. And I know Howie uh, will certainly also talk about this. uh, Efforts for peace that were made uh, with Egypt and were successful with Egypt in the 1970s, with Jordan in the 1990s. Uh, Moving forward, as you said, there was also a promise of peace with Oslo in 1993, uh, unfortunately shattered two years later with the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, Moving uh, uh, more forward, a series of conflicts that involved Gaza. Uh, The uh, underlying issues, though, not necessarily being addressed, like occupation, uh, status of Jerusalem, security for Israel, uh, which then really brings us to the uh, Mm. the, the present time. I want to attack this kind of in a in a three step phase uh, again past present future wh- where we started and and kind of where we're we're going. What were the signs, Howard? Do you believe as we as after twenty twenty one the ceasefire in twenty twenty one? This region is still very unsettled, but what were the signs? Do you believe that led to October seventh? That's a that's a great question. Um, because the signs are much more visible in retrospect. I think certainly from the vantage point of Israel, the, the, the severity of the attack and the brutality of the attack and, and the, the effectiveness of the attack mm-hmm. came as a complete surprise. Before October 7th, there were certain assumptions about the Israeli military, Israeli security, Israeli intelligence, uh, which simply did not point to any of that happening. Now, they're still sort of trying to sort that out in Israel. I would say once this conflict is over, they're going to figure out, they're going to start to try to lay some responsibility. So 
even already, the military and the intelligence community are already saying that they brought this to attention of the of the government, the Netanyahu government, and the Netanyahu government for a number of its well, re, for, for its own political reasons chose to downplay and ignored and actually facilitated it. Maybe, like I said, a lot of this is still being sorted out. But in retrospect, the I mean, the one sign that really points to it is the fact that in past conflicts, Hamas was contained but never really neutralized. Hamas has remained Hamas, both militarily, but I think also Hamas's aims in all of this have not changed, really. You know, their original charter in 1988, I mean, said, among other things, it said that its goal was the violent destruction of the state of Israel. It also said that that negotiation, compromise, and diplomacy are simply not options, Mm. that the only resolution is a violent revolution. And while they revised their charter in 2017, this was still there. The other part of the uh, of the events of October 7th, which in retrospect are clear, is that in Hamas's charter, it's pretty clear that they see as the adversary not only the state of Israel as a political entity, and not only Israelis as people, but Jews. And uh, this conflict, I think more than previous ones, has had, it really has had the character and the rhetoric uh, and the exultation about the killing of Jews and not only Israelis. There's that moment, you know, that um, that audio recording of one of Hamas's militants phoning his parents and bragging about how many Jews he killed mm. as opposed to how many Israelis he killed. So those things are clearer in retrospect, and I think they'll be clearer moving forward. I have about just a minute left here, and either of you can handle this. How has Hamas evolved since maybe 2006 when they won the election and, and took over Gaza? Well, I don't know how much evol- what it really ma- uh, is about evolution. I mean, they are a force uh, within Gaza itself uh, and really, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, isolated there. Uh, there is no relationship between them and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. In fact, if anything, they have uh, more of a relationship with some of those that provide support for them, particularly uh, uh, Iran. Uh, and then you also, of course, have the fact that uh, most of their political wing is uh, in exile, uh, some of them uh, being in Qatar, where negotiations with the Israelis mm-hmm. occurred for a ceasefire. Uh, but given the situation of Gaza uh, over the past uh, 20 years or so, there isn't and there hasn't been really that much support for Hamas. There haven't been any new elections or anything. I- inside the Strip? Inside the Strip. Unfortunately, though, this is one of those moments where it has probably galvanized support mm-hmm. because of how severe uh, the Israeli uh, actions have been there. And I do want to – we'll talk about that next because I yeah. think there is a pretty clear message that needs to be made about Palestinians and about Hamas. I think it's very easy to lump them all in, but that's – taking the easy way out, and I think there's a more nuanced explanation. i got to take a break. We'll get to your calls and more from our experts next on JR Afternoon. All right, I do want to squeeze in a couple of your calls here. We've got Sahid Khan, the Associate Professor of Teaching in Near Eastern Studies at Wayne State University, and Howard Lupovich, the Director of the Cohen Haddow Center for Judaic Studies, also at Wayne State University. They host uh, an interesting panel every year. It's titled A Shared Future, and they tackle a number of issues inside the Middle East and, and the conflicts that, that are uh, prevalent there, and, and obviously the one that we are talking about today is the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. Can we can we take a, a couple calls here? Sure. Um, and then we'll continue our conversation. I do want to squeeze in Tom in Birmingham. Tom, if you could get right to it, and we'll try to get you answered. Hey, Tom. Hi there. Uh, it's so great to have these guests. Thank you for this topic. Uh, I'm, I'm a uh, American of Palestinian ancestry of a 
1948 refugee, half Christian, half Muslim. Both of my best friends were Jewish, to be honest. And I, I, the terrible circumstances that the uh, both these peoples, by the Sykes-Picot Agreement, Balfour Declaration, whatever you want to see, the, the Hollywood side of it, Lawrence of Arabia, was terrible because they think they could be otherwise very compatible people. But as with Palestinian background, I have to say there's some self-criticism we have to apply. And in terms of, uh, number one, when the Oslo Accords came along, we had great uh, uh, leadership from the West Bank and Gaza with Hanan Ashrawi, the 1991 Madrid Peace Conference. Instead, we had the PLO and Yasser Arafat take over, and he had feckless leadership. Shimon Peres asked him to get a, a suicide bomber out of Gaza that Yasser said wasn't there, was there. And then the Israeli Arabs ended up boycotting Shimon Peres because of a mistake in bombing in, the, in, in Lebanon. And brought in Netanyahu because he won by less than a percentage point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is uh, these are unfortunate things, and I'm not saying I don't have constructive criticism for the Israeli side. I'm just trying to point out that if we're going to get to an honest uh, ending of this, we have to have some self-reflection on the mistakes both sides have made. So I hope that contribution is a fair yeah. one there as well. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Uh, I, I I I can't express my gratitude enough to you, Tom, for calling in because I think that that is. Exactly what Howie and I try to impart, this idea that uh, intellectual honesty is really paramount. Um, I think that there are people who probably are better at uh, uh, handling this from more of an emotional register. Uh, but our backgrounds are as historians uh, and as, as, as academics, uh, this is sort of within our wheelhouse mm-hmm. and what we hope to contribute to uh, the conversation. Uh, we're not trying to discount uh, people's emotional investment in it, but as as Tom said, recognizing that it is far more complex than the silo in which many people do live uh, is absolutely essential. Otherwise, there's these huge gaps in the narrative that can't be explained unless you realize that there's more to the narrative. So I want to get to where we are today. Uh, obviously, some hostages have been released by Hamas, and uh, I, I believe Benjamin Netanyahu is supposed to meet with the families of some hostages tonight or today. Um, and and that continues to be a main focus. But Benjamin Netanyahu has he really hasn't minced words. He wants to out Hamas. He wants to root and stem, pull them right out of the strip because he feels that Israel will never truly be safe as long as Hamas remains in power in, in Gaza. Um. Is there is there a way forward where like is there a way forward, at least from an Israeli perspective, where they stop their offensive and we come to an immediate uh, de-escalation of this situation in the strip without eliminating Hamas and in an effort to try to get these 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 hostages back to safety is there is there a conceivable way do you feel howard maybe i think first of all the conflict doesn't stop doesn't the, the, you know doesn't stop until all the hostages are released it has to be every single one that's first secondly there has to be some some overture from hamas that their aims are going to change if stopping if if having a ceasefire simply means allowing hamas to retool and regroup and do this again that's going to be difficult as well. Um, but if those two things can be accomplished, especially the release of the hostages and also obviously Hamas ceasing, not shooting missiles at Israel anymore, if that also has to stop, 
then maybe. I, I think the biggest question Israelis have, and I think the biggest question generally is, on the day after this is over, what does the region look like? Yeah. I mean, but I think at this point from Israel. Well, and in the Strip, it's devastation. Well, exactly, exactly. But how do you move forward and how do you rebuild? But I think at this point, defeating Hamas, and, and I'm not sure if defeating Hamas means annihilating Hamas. Said, I think I've heard you say making Hamas irrelevant in the Strip. I think that might be is that, a goal. Is that something that Hamas fears, do you, do you feel? Absolutely. I mean, nobody wants to be sidelined. Uh, everybody wants to have uh, a skin in the game, so to speak. Uh, I mean, if you think about organizations and, and entities that, that are most alarmist, they're alarmist because they want, ironically, the house to be on fire. Otherwise, yeah. they serve no purpose. And Hamas, I think, sees itself as that. Now, to be fair, uh, Hamas comes around uh, in large part, as, as Tom alluded to, uh, really what was seen as the corruption and the ineffectiveness of the Palestinian Authority, first under Yasser Arafat, mm-hmm. Uh, and then by Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, Abbas certainly was able to uh, hold space within the West Bank, uh, but Gaza didn't feel the same way about it. And therefore, they voted in Hamas because they felt that they had nothing else to lose because the PA really wasn't much of an option. Uh, Of course, uh, now we see the problem of Hamas, that they have become uh, uh, simply uh, uncontrollable. And I would also just add to Tom's question that Beyond this notion of the importance of self-criticism uh, and, you know, and intellectual honesty, I think you've really underlined the fact that this is a crisis of leadership on both sides. In order to really move forward, you need strong, not just strong leadership, but the right leadership. I mean, the template is Begin and Sadat, two individuals who are able to you know, rethink their own worldview in order to make peace in the best interests of their people. You need the right Israeli leader to do it, and you and the Palestinians have to produce someone as well. It's not entirely clear who that is, certainly on the Palestinian side, but that's an absolute necessity, and that's, Tom makes your question so important. 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Let's go to Vince Northville. Hey, Vince. Hey, gentlemen. Chris, thank you for taking my call. Um, and, gentlemen, thank you for taking the time to explain your positions on this pivotal issue. Sincerely appreciate it. Um, My thought process is this. How much of a responsibility do you think uh, for the destabilization of the Middle East due to the Abraham Accords when Donald Trump went over there and made a massive deal with the Egyptians, with the Jordanians, with the Israelis to start open business and commerce? And it just seems to me that the um, Iranians got extremely upset by all these, by the UAE, all these Muslim countries coming together for the financial interest, interest of the, and I'm going to emphasize this word, civilized Muslims to do commerce, open borders, do business, make money, maybe turn the whole entire Middle East into what the EAU is and what the Saudis have done. All right, uh, Vince, I, I appreciate that. What are your thoughts? Well, thank you for the call, Vince. Uh, First of all, uh, the Abraham Accords uh, dealt with uh, two countries uh, specifically, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, to normalize uh, diplomatic relations with the state of Israel. Uh, Unfortunately, in many ways, this was uh, inaccurately portrayed or promoted as bringing peace uh, between the UAE and Bahrain and Israel. Uh, These countries were never at war. Uh, What they really did was put out into the open relationships that had actually existed for quite a while. In fact, I was in um, in the UAE about two years ago, 
there were plenty of uh, of Jewish expatriates who'd been in the UAE for 20 years working, mm. and they said that there'd never been any issues with their being Jewish. They just simply didn't happen to be from Israel because there were no diplomatic relations, there were no passport uh, recognitions, etc. Uh, what we find here is it's definitely an economic deal, uh, and one that was going to be certainly mutually beneficial for all. What we find, though, that in the last two months, even the UAE and Bahrain have had to dial down their relationship with uh, with Israel because they've seen it as being simply too egregious. Mm. As far as um, uh, Vince's other point regarding Iran, Iran actually uh, is not upset by this. For Iran, they see this as a validation uh, that the UAE and Bahrain are corrupt. Uh, they are authoritarian regimes that uh, cozied up to Israel in their estimation simply for money without any concern for having any moral conviction. This is the way that Iran so that sees is it. Iran up, you feel? This is something that Iran has leveraged very, very effectively as being uh, an effort to say, see, this is how the Gulf states are. This shows the difference between them and us. Mm, very interesting. I have to take one more break. Uh, still lots to talk about. Don't go anywhere. More as we continue with our guests here on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. Uh, Sahid Khan and Howard Lupovich from Wayne State join us. Um, appreciate your time very much and the discussion. Um, you know, one of the, the things that I, I, I wanted to hit on was these, these protests, these rallies that we continue to see here in the United States, certainly on college campuses. They, they continue to be pretty prevalent. And with that, we've seen an increase in anti-Semitism. We've seen an increase uh, in Islamophobia. And and again, it almost feels like these p- people are living in echo chambers and they're not getting a full picture or they're not sitting down and having conversations. They're, they're, not, they're not understanding where people are coming from. And is that, how, how do we quell or tamp down some of these tensions? Because... Again, it's very visceral to a lot of people, uh, maybe family in these parts of the world or they hail from these parts of the world. It, it is it, it can be in, incredibly personal. How do we start bringing the temperature down? How do we start cooling things off a little bit while still understanding that people have strong feelings about these issues? Howard. That's a great question. It's a great question. And I'm not sure I have the answer immediately. But I can suggest the following. First of all, thinking about these campus protests, I think we have to distinguish between two, you know, two, two groups within the protesters. Mm-hmm. You have protesters who are Palestinian Americans for whom this is extremely personal. Like you say, family, friends, they're, they're directly involved. And then you have others who are not Palestinian American who are supporting it for other reasons. So I think that the Palestinian Americans, the, the crucial thing is and the hope is is in terms of tamping down the rhetoric, is that they'll recognize the difference between, let's call it nonviolent and peaceful protests. And for the most part, these protests have been, and that the problem with these protests is not necessarily the rhetoric, because free speech, they can say what they want, is that sometimes the rhetoric leads to things beyond rhetoric, threats, vandalism, even violence. Uh, and it's making the other students on campus feel not only uncomfortable, which is something students have to deal with, but physically threatened. Mm. That's unacceptable. For the protesters who are not Palestinian, I, I mean, I think this is where it really the place to start is there's an element of, well, partly it's the, the, the echo chamber of social media, but I think there's also an element of bandwagon here. This is the popular. Is it trendy? This is, this is the trendy popular issue of the day. 
And it really starts from a trendy soundbite. Zionism is settler colonialism. Now, that's an erroneous claim, but it's a very easy claim to uh, to embrace uh, because everybody agrees that colonialism is bad. And if, if colonialism is bad and you call Zionism colonialism, then naturally Zionism is bad and you don't have to think about it beyond that. And that element of the protest, I think, is something that, I mean, it's it's overly simplistic and it points to the it points to a complete absence of understanding of of the complexity and nuance of this conflict. So how to deal with it? Well, the first step is what we've already alluded to in this conversation is that the antidote to one dimensional narrow thinking is not more one dimensional narrow thinking is nuance and context and background and perspective. Nuance can melt it. Now, but but the trick is. And I think Saeed, you'll agree, when these, some of these same, like on our campus, when some of these same students are in our classroom, their minds are open, they are critical thinkers, they embrace nuance, partly because they have to so they don't fail the course, <laughs> partly because in that setting, they are willing and they are eager to do it. And when they leave the room and go in and change modes from being student and learner mm-hmm. to activist and protester, it's like they have some kind of, they morph into something much less open-minded and much more and much narrower. So the trick is to transplant the setting and the mentality of the classroom into the public space. Well, they also, in the classroom, they have a moderator. They have somebody who hopefully has read enough, read more, especially the nuance, the context, and is providing that with them. So they can always check back with the instructor and say, hey, Mm. is, is that right? And then we usually don't ever say yes, but we always say yes and and add to that. When you're out in the streets protesting, uh, there really is no moderator except oneself. Uh, or uh, if there's somebody else who's leading, sure. leading the, 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 uh, the rally. Unfortunately, in many, uh, in many protests, you're going to find on, on both sides of this, uh, this issue, the moderator usually is the person with the bullhorn leading the uh, chants. And the chants usually uh, serve to be as provocative as possible mm-hmm. to really keep everyone's uh, passions uh, as inflamed as possible. I do want to squeeze John here in Windsor, and then I've got some final questions for, for the both of you. Hey, John. Hi, Chris. Great. I mean, you know what? This is such a good topic, and you're doing a great job, and your guests are wonderful. But I'd like to make a comment. This is the first time I've ever heard anybody on the radio or television in years say the word Zionism. I grew up in Dearborn. My Arab friends from 10 to 80, they say it's the Zionists that are creating the problems and they, that they have to tone it down. And I've never heard that till today. They even did the word mentioned Zionist because I think it might be, you know, a bad thing to talk about, but because I never hear it. Can he explain to me why I, I am wrong that they blame Zionism for what's happening in the Middle East? That's a great question. Thanks, Thank you. John. Thank you, John, for that for that question. So I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, blaming Zionists is an example of an oversimplification, and it's an example of a lack of understanding of what Zionism lazy. is. It's intellectually lazy. That's a, that's a, I think that's a very good way to put it. And intellectually sloppy, I would say, as well. Um, so in, in some ways, step one in really understanding this is understanding what Zionism is and understanding what Zionism is not. So I'll be very blunt. I'll be very plain. Zionism is not a form of European colonialism. Zionism is a form of European nationalism. It's not the same thing. Calling Zionism as a form of colonialism 
uh, ignores the fact that there was a long pre-existing connection between Jews and Palestine, which predates the beginnings of Zionism by centuries. Mm. Secondly, it also ignores the fact that European Jews who founded Zionism, who became Zionists, were not trying to impose European culture on a non-European population or part of the world, but they became Zionists because they were rejected by European culture. They, they, they were deemed non-European. I think it's often forgotten that for centuries, Jews were referred, referred by Europeans, especially mm-hmm. European, uh, you know, European Christians, as being Asiatic or in the parlance of the day, Oriental. Mm. For centuries, Jews were excluded because they were deemed as not being European. And now suddenly in the demonization of Zionism, Jews are being demonized because Zionism somehow is something European, as an inherent contradiction there. Mm. Rather, Zionism was a movement of return. Mm. Jews had an old connection to this, to this land, and they were returning to the land. So as we, there's lots of talk about ceasefire. There's lots, lots of talks about, about how to bring this conflict to an end, at least uh, in the near term. Is a ceasefire possible? Is a two-state solution possible? Is that an old-fashioned way of, of thinking about a conclusion to this? How, how do we bring this thing to an end? i got just a minute left. Yes to the first question, no to the second question. I think that there is, in fact, underway right now um, uh, overtures toward uh, another ceasefire. The demands from the international community, with the exception of the United States, are categorical on this issue, especially the uh, the other four countries in the uh, uh, member states of the UN Security Council, permanent uh, mm. uh, member states. As far as the two-state solution, I think that this is rather elusive, um, partly because even the last incarnation of a, of a two-state solution uh, was going to be one that uh, was very limiting, and it would be very difficult for the Palestinians to go ahead and accept. Uh, there's going to have to be some very creative thinking uh, beyond just a two-state model, I think, uh, for it to be acceptable by both sides. Uh, Howard, real quick, as we wrap up here, uh, thank you first uh, to the both of you. Thank you for coming on. In just a couple of minutes, where, where is the best resource for people to use to get the information that they need on this issue? Do you feel? Oh, uh, I, I would start. Well, I would start with a with a book called the the Palestinian Palestinian Israel conflict: A Very Short Introduction oh. by Martin Bunton. That sounds great. It's eighty pages. You can read it even if you don't like to read long books. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good place to start. Saheed Khan, Howard Lupovitz, thank you both so much. Appreciate the time. I hope to do this again uh, under better Absolutely. circumstances. Would love to have. Thank you very much. Got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon.